Yes. About a Girl is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. You know about Paul McCartney, the most successful songwriter in history, a rock star at the forefront of a cultural revolution, one-fourth of the most iconic band of all time. But this is not about Paul McCartney. This is about his first love, his muse, and the one that got away, Jane Asher. This story is about a girl. The audience at the Royal Albert Hall on April 18, 1963, was mostly girls, and they were mostly screaming. It didn't even seem to matter who was on stage. Each time a pop singer came out to perform, the girls began to shriek. Shut up, Jane thought. She couldn't see how any of the performers were worth that kind of vocal strain. Jane was 17 an accomplished actress, and actually kind of famous. She'd started her acting career at five, and she had films plus plays and audio dramas on her resume. She'd played Alice in Wonderland and Wendy and Peter Pan and Lady Jane Grey. This spring, she'd become familiar to British television viewers as a panelist on the television show Jukebox Dirty. That's why she was here at the BBC's Swing and Sound concert. She was supposed to interview a new band on the bill, four boys from Liverpool who called themselves the Beatles. She'd taken note of the names of the Beatles, Paul, John, George, and Ringo. But so far, she was having a hard time keeping track of who was who. It wasn't her fault. Their hair, their clothes, it was all the same. Largely by design, she supposed. When they took the stage, the volume of screams reached levels never before heard at a pop concert. She'd seen wild crowds before, when Elvis Presley had swept the UK. But this wasn't quite like Elvis. It was something more. But then the band started to play. The music that swam through the noise of the crowd was good. There was something about the melodies that kept taking a surprising turn. Not the kind of simple three-chord pop she was used to. And when she got a good look at them, now these I could scream for, she said to the photographer sitting next to her. Go ahead, the photographer said. She put her hands over her ears and screamed as loud as she could. After the concert, Jane waded through the crowd to make it backstage. She was looking for the band, but they found her first. Four clean-cut lads in suits suddenly surrounded her, pleading for her to marry them. This was their shtick whenever they met a pretty girl, a unified marriage ambush. They all knew who she was, she found out, because they all watched Jukebox Jury religiously. They'd all fallen for her on the television. 
only, said the one called Paul, we thought you were a blonde, since we'd only seen you on the telly in black and white. But you're a redhead. Jane tucked a strand of hair behind her ear self-consciously. She'd grown up getting called carrots and copper knob. Come with us, the one called John said. We're going to a party. The party wound up on King Street at a journalist's flat. She kept trying to ask the band questions. She was supposed to be interviewing them for the program. But the boys started interviewing her instead, trying to make her blush. What do girls do when they play with themselves? John asked her. He'd been taking amphetamines and was getting drunk, too. Flustered, she told him she wasn't going to talk about that. Paul elbowed his friend aside. It appears you're a nice girl, he told Jane. Come on. He led her to a bedroom off the main parlor. It was quieter there. All right, then. What's your favorite food? Paul asked. That was a little bit more her speed. They talked about food, and then they talked about music. Both came from musical families, though very different kinds. Jane's mother was a professor of oboe at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama, while Paul's father had led a jazz band in the 1920s and taught Paul to play the piano by ear. She told him they had a piano in her family's house on Wimpole Street. That was in a posh neighborhood, and she braced for his reaction. But he only said, Wimple? Oh, like in Chaucer, you know. Fool samely here Wimple Pinchhead was. His pronunciation of Middle English was pretty good, even through his Liverpudlian accent. He was cute and smart. For Jane, this was the most impressive thing about him yet. Before she could react, John poked his head through the door. What does he want? She thought. They were going now, to another party. He lingered for a second before he looked at Jane. She can come too. Jane checked her watch. It was just past midnight. They'd gotten to the party at half past ten. Had they really talked for over an hour? I should go home, she said. She wanted to stay with Paul, but she was tired. She had to do the sensible thing. I'll walk you, Paul said. It didn't take much to convince her. Was this really happening? Was a boy walking her home? A handsome boy that had just quoted the Canterbury Tales? Yes, apparently it was. The handsome boy walked her home and asked for her number. She gave it to him, and they parted with promises to make a date later that week. Jane caught him walking away with a skip in his step. She could barely contain her smile as she walked inside. When he'd been trying to get them a record deal, their manager, Brian Epstein, had told everyone the Beatles would one day be bigger than Elvis. Most everyone had laughed him off. Even music producer George Martin of the EMI label, who eventually signed them, had been skeptical. And yet, he'd seen something in them, and now, they were well on their way. Jane's house on Wimpole Street was a townhouse with six floors. Plenty of room for Jane and her brother and sister, and plenty of room for the four Beatles, too. It became their refuge over the course of the next year, as the Beatles quickly climbed the ladder of success. Jane's mother had chronic insomnia, so it didn't matter how late they finished a gig. She'd be awake to cook them a meal when they piled into the kitchen. For Paul, the Asher household was like a different country both exciting and foreign. Jane's father, the distinguished doctor, liked to give himself injections at the dinner table. Both her siblings, who were also actors, 
who are auditioning for roles in movies and plays. Jane's mother's oboe students were always coming in and out. There was always music playing in the house. Jazz and folk music, but also classical pieces he'd never listened to before. Jane could tell he was having a bit of a culture shock, especially at meals when her family liked to play vocabulary games. But Paul was never embarrassed to ask questions if he didn't know the meaning of a word or didn't recognize a composer. He seemed eager to soak up as much knowledge and culture as he could. Her family might be intellectual and sophisticated, he told her, but I know I'm bright enough to keep up. And of course, the Ashers liked Paul just as much as he liked them. It was easy to like Paul, always a little self-deprecating, always kind, always enthusiastic. One night, when he'd missed the train home to Liverpool, they offered to put him up for the night. He protested, didn't seem proper, but Mrs. Asher insisted. He ended up staying for three years. They gave him the attic room, and he became a member of the Asher household. He'd lost his mother only a few years before, and he was still mourning her. But Jane's family was ready to adopt him. Soon enough, Jane's mother was giving him weekly music lessons, as she had years earlier for George Martin, coincidentally. And she taught him to read music well enough so that he could finally transcribe the songs he was writing. And they were writing a lot of songs, he and John, some of the most beautiful they'd ever compose. The two of them would hole up in the family's music room down in the cellar, huddled over the piano, hashing out chords and melodies until everything sounded right to them. They wrote so many songs that they had some to spare. Jane's older brother Peter formed his own pop duo with a friend of his from school, and Paul gave them a song to record, A World Without Love. It became a number one hit in the U.S. and the U.K. But the Beatles had already had several number ones by now, including one John and Paul wrote in Jane's basement, I Wanna Hold Your Hand, the first time they topped the charts in America. Things were changing. By now, Paul and the boys were more famous than Jane was. At first, when she and Paul went out on dates, she'd sometimes get stopped by fans of Jukebox Jury. By the end of the summer, they could no longer walk around London without getting swamped by Paul's fans. He was the cute beetle, after all. The one that everyone wanted to date. One night, they were leaving a theater after watching a Neil Simon play, and they were photographed by the press. After that, photographers wouldn't leave them alone either. The sidewalk outside Wimple Street became a mob scene most mornings with girls trying to catch a glimpse of them, or really, just of Paul. Jane's father figured out how to sneak Paul out of the house by having him climb across the roof to the house next door. In February 1964, the band went to America for the first time. The Beatles had booked two appearances on The Ed Sullivan Show a popular American variety television program. Paul would be gone for two weeks. When they arrived in New York, the crowd was so massive that the band thought the president was in town. But it was all for them. Beatlemania was now global. There wasn't a shop Jane could walk through, no matter where she was, without seeing merchandise depicting her boyfriend's face. Paul might be outshining Jane in public, but he still treated her like she was a great prize. 
like he was lucky to be with her. And of course, they were just Jane and Paul in the house on Wimple Street. Sometimes Jane thought about the fact that he was so desirable to so many other women all around the world, that she was the envy of most, if not all of them. And yet, it didn't worry her. These women didn't really know Paul. They had an idea of him in their head, of who they wanted him to be. Being a beetle was a part of Paul, but it wasn't the full story. When no one was watching, he allowed another side to come out, that of a boy from Liverpool who still grieved for his mother and wanted to be loved, the one who played off of John's sense of humor as a shield for his own vulnerability, the one who spent most of the day in the basement writing songs because he couldn't imagine doing anything else. Paul eventually managed to get a piano into his attic room, and sometimes he'd dream melodies while he was sleeping and tumble out of bed to pick them out on the keyboard. Wake up, he whispered to her one morning, and Jane followed him from her bedroom to his, half asleep still, and listened to him play music no one else in the world had heard before, a song he would call Yesterday. All the time, he kept looking over at her as if she were the Mona Lisa, something to be admired. She still hadn't fully gotten used to it. In 1966, when they'd been together for three years, they moved into a house of their own. It was Jane who found it a trim three-story place on Cavendish Avenue. The other Beatles had all moved out to London suburbs, but she and Paul wanted to stay in the city. They could afford to live any place they liked by then. The Beatles were the biggest pop stars in the world, more popular than Jesus, as John unfortunately told an interviewer just as they embarked on that year's world tour. That 1966 world tour was especially tough on the band. With hostile press and Americans turning against them for John's comments and for speaking out against the war in Vietnam, they decided not to tour again. They'd focus instead on recording at EMI's Abbey Road Studios. That was a relief for Jane. Sometimes she thought it was hardest for their relationship when Paul was abroad on tour when the band was surrounded by women who wanted nothing more than a night with the Beatle. Even at the new house on Cavendish Avenue, which Paul had renovated with a formidable gate outside and an intercom system, there were already a few determined girls keeping vigil outside. In the evenings when she cooked dinner, they would ring the doorbell, and she'd answer them over the intercom and ask them to wait until after dinner, when she would send Paul out to sign autographs. She always tried to be kind to his fans. They call on the phone, too, no matter how many times Paul changed the number. Paul usually answered it using a funny voice, and that was usually enough to get a terrified fan to hang up. But Jane didn't mind so much about that. She had never wanted a normal, quiet life. She'd always planned to be in the public eye, as an actress. She had been brought up to always be working, always refining her talent, and she held true to that. 
1964, she starred in an adaptation of Edgar Allan Poe's Mask of the Red Death, directed by Roger Corman. In just the previous year, she'd shot a very successful picture called Alfie with Michael Caine. Her career was flourishing. Her career, in fact, was what all their bitterest fights were about. She and Paul were both stubborn, and sometimes it even felt like a game, facing off against him as he told her she was meant to retire, settle down, and be content to be Mrs. Paul McCartney. She would fire back, telling him that that would never happen. Not that she wouldn't have considered marrying him. The press was always asking about an engagement, and they'd talked about it a few times. But then something would come up for the band, a recording session or a tour, and they'd postpone their plans. Or she would take a new acting role, and they'd fight about it again. After one argument, she told him he could live without her if he didn't want to be dating an actress, and took herself off to Bristol to join the old Vic Theatre Company there. She was cast as Juliet, and she knew Paul would be jealous of the actor who was Romeo, sighing and dying for her love every night. Sure enough, the breakup didn't stick for very long. Once, he had written a song about her after they quarreled. We can work it out, the lyrics went, and they did work it out, every time. It was through the Bristol Old Vic that she ended up being the one going on tour in 1967 while the Beatles stayed home. The theater company was taking Romeo and Juliet on the road, performing all over Canada and the United States. For once, Paul told her she had to go. She couldn't miss such a huge opportunity, and the chance to see the continent he was so familiar with by now. He even flew out to meet her in Denver for her 21st birthday. They walked barefoot through the snowdrifts of the Rocky Mountains. She was glad to see him, but frustrated that Paul was all anyone in America seemed to ask her about. I'm in this country as a Shakespearean actress, not just as a friend of a Beatle, she told a reporter in New York. The story had run with a headline, Shakespeare's the topic, Paul not to be mentioned. The tour lasted five months, and when Jane came home, everything seemed different. Paul and the other Beatles had always smoked pot, which Jane disliked but was used to. Now, they were taking LSD. The house was full of new things, furniture and knickknacks that she didn't recognize. Paul and John, always close, were even closer now, telling her about the spiritual experiences they were having with acid, and she felt jealous of their connection in a way that she hadn't felt over any of Paul's fans. Then in August, they went to see a lecture. The speaker was called Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, an Indian guru, and the Beatles felt so inspired they insisted on following him to Wales the next day. Jane went with them. They all followed him back to India, where they practiced meditation. The effect on the band was profound. This, they announced, was something better than drugs. Two days later, when they heard their longtime friend and manager Brian Epstein had died of an overdose of sleeping pills, all they could talk about was the Maharishi's teachings. Brian is just passing into the next phase, John explained to reporters. Jane didn't mind meditation, and she guessed it was better than drugs, but she was still a very traditional English woman. She didn't really see what the boys saw in the old man. By the end of their time in the ashram, the boys were divided. George still revered the Maharishi, while the others had become disillusioned by him. 
and it seemed like the differences between the Beatles were growing. And the differences between Jane and Paul were feeling sharper too. On Christmas Day, 1967, Paul proposed to her. She said yes. It seemed like the thing to do. But seven months later, she was appearing on a BBC talk show when the host asked her how the engagement was going. I haven't broken it off, but it is broken off, finished, she found herself saying. I know it sounds corny, but we still see each other and love each other, but it hasn't worked out. Perhaps we'll be childhood sweethearts and meet again and get married when we're about 70. It hasn't worked out. Those words kept going around in her head. Just a few days prior, Jane was released early from rehearsal in Bristol. She arrived at home and called for Paul. That was when she knew that something was wrong. She heard Paul's voice, and then someone else too, answering him. A girl's voice. Paul, she repeated, her throat tightening. No answer. She walked to the bedroom and opened the door. They looked over at her as the door opened. They were in the bed. Both of their faces turned white. Jane looked away, and in that moment, everything became a blur. Paul was using every word he could think of to tell Jane it had all been a horrible mistake, and he was so ashamed, but she could barely hear him for all the rushing in her ears. She turned and walked out, shaking. She'd send her mother to collect her things, she thought. And it was picturing Mrs. Asher, who'd taught Paul to read music, coming to pack her daughter's belongings. That was what made Jane start to cry. She'd been with Paul since she was a teenager. And now, as an adult, she was mostly known to the world as his girlfriend. What would she be without him? Jane was paging through the paper one morning when she saw Paul's face, next to a blonde. He was in a tuxedo. She was in a white suit. They had just gotten married, apparently. It had been less than a year, and he'd already moved on so quickly. Her name was Linda. She looked sweet. She already had a little daughter. Good for him. She hoped, for Linda's sake, that everything worked out. What would she be without him? An actress, always. In 1970, she starred in the independent drama Deep End, which was filmed in Munich. She played a woman lusted after by her teenage colleague at a public pool. The film was a critical success and later cited by David Lynch as a favorite. She went on to have a solid career in British cinema, on television, and on the stage. There was never a time when she wasn't working, even as she grew to middle age. She also became an author, many times over. Almost everyone else Jane had known in the years she'd been with Paul ended up writing a memoir about the Beatles. Jane never did. Instead, she turned her hand to fiction, writing three successful novels. None of them are about pop bands. A talent for cooking and baking she'd had even when she was living with Paul blossomed into several baking books, and she made herself a bit of a lifestyle brand, too, with her homemaking program, The Good Life, with Jane Asher in the 1990s. And she became a wife, too. And a mother. 
Gerald Scarf was a cartoonist 10 years her senior. He was handsome and calm, and he cared about Jane's acting career and understood how important it was to her. They had the same interests and made each other laugh. She thought she'd found something good, and even after their daughter Katie was born in 1974, they were going to take the slow. They didn't marry until 1981. Around the same time, Gerald became well-known for his work with another London rock band who coincidentally recorded at Abbey Road, Pink Floyd. They had two more children together, making the big, artistic family Jane had grown up in herself. The story of the Beatles only grew with the years, and since Jane remained in the spotlight herself, she was often asked by reporters about her time with Paul. Sometimes, the less reputable British papers offered her princely sums to tell all. Every time, she'd shake her head. She was even less inclined to talk about him now than she'd been when they were together. Perhaps it was because she hadn't anything good to say, at least at first. Perhaps it was because she still disliked being known forever as the ex-girlfriend of a Beatle rather than an artist in her own right. And perhaps it was also because the years she'd had with Paul were a vivid and private part of her youth, and she didn't want to share them with the world. There were times, inevitably, when she thought about him. She could hardly move through the world without hearing the songs he'd written for her. And she must have thought of him in 1980 when John Lennon was shot and killed, shocking the world. She and John had never been close, but the whole world was mourning for the cultural movement he'd come to represent. Then in the 1990s, the news covered Linda McCartney's breast cancer, and in 1998, her death. Jane was one of the few who still remembered Paul when he was still hurting over the loss of his mother, Mary, who had also died from breast cancer. She knew how much the loss of his mother must have echoed in the loss of his wife. It had been 30 years. She wasn't the same person she'd been back then. And it was certain that Paul wasn't either. They'd been children then, trying to navigate the uncharted waters of fame and fortune. She couldn't truly know the person he'd become in the decades since. She only knew that they'd changed each other's lives profoundly. And whoever they were now, some part of each of them was owed to the other. In the 60-some years since they first formed, the Beatles never fell out of popularity, as big in 2020 as they were in the 1960s. Their music broke boundaries and defined an era, making legends of Paul McCartney, John Lennon, Ringo Starr, and George Harrison. But this isn't about them. This is about Jane Asher, a very young woman who fervently loved a young man, but truly found herself by losing him. This is About a Girl. About a Girl comes to you from Double Elvis and is executive produced by Jake Brennan and Brady Sadler. It was created, written, and narrated by me, Eleanor Wells, with additional writing and editing by S.I. Rosenbaum. Scott Janowitz is the show's producer and mixer and provides music and editorial support. Audio editing by Matt Tahaney. If you like the show, please subscribe to About a Girl on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to leave a rating and review. 
For more great shows from Double Elvis, visit doubleelvis.com. That's doubleelvis.com.